Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 1 for our message. I ran across something this week that was somewhat interesting in regard to Father's Day. Today is Father's Day. We will not be preaching specifically to the fathers this morning as specifically to you, uh, in fact, uh, on Mother's Day. However, uh, we're going to be wrapping up some concepts of the family this morning, and of course the father is a pretty important part of that. And as I thought about Father's Day and I was reading the news this week, uh, our president made a statement concerning Father's Day. And at the risk of ex- uh, upsetting the more politically aware among us, I'm going to read his statement that he made for Father's Day. He said this, Fathershood is among the most difficult and rewarding jobs a man can have. It demands constant attention, frequent sacrifice, and a healthy dose of patience. Even in a time when technology allows us to connect instantly with almost anyone on earth, There is no substitute for a father's presence, care, and support. On Father's Day, we show our gratitude to the men who show us how to learn, grow, and live. With encouragement and unconditional love, fathers guide their children and help them envision brighter futures. They are teachers and coaches, friends, and role models. They instill values like hard work and integrity and teach their kids to take responsibility for themselves and those around them. This is a task for every father, whether married or single, gay or straight, natural or adoptive. And every child deserves someone who will step up and fill this role. My administration proudly supports dads who are not only present but also involved, who meet their commitments to their sons and daughters, even if their own fathers did not. Today, let us reflect on our fathers' essential contributions to our lives, our society, and our nation. Let us thank the men who understand there is nothing more important than being the best fathers they can be. Now, this was the president's um, statement in regard to fatherhood. And in many ways, I'd say it probably pretty well reflects the cultural idea of what it means to be a father today. It was very politically correct. Um, It was an earnest attempt to support fathers on this day. He mentions good things, being involved, He mentioned loving and guiding and teaching, which are all responsibilities of the Father. But within his attempt to support fathers on Father's Day, he misses those elements of the Father's role that we have spoken of that are most important. The parts of a father's role that support a stable family and a stable society. He missed the part where you lead them unto God. He missed the part where you show them what a father is through discipline and through teaching and through correction and through guidance so that they can better know how to understand their Heavenly Father. And then, of course, he also undermined undermined it. He also subverted his own statement by adding the sodomite agenda because the very thing that is destroying the family the sodomite agenda is being propped up as a part of what a family is 
modern culture. And so there are some problems with the president's speech as we understand the father's role in a family and the father's role in a church and the father's role in a society. And today, as we close our family series this morning and this evening, I'd like to present to you the signs of a rebellious people. And in doing so, we'll have a much better idea of why Father's Day is really important, what the Father's Day, what uh, what the Father's role really is in the family and in society. And Lord willing, it will be both an encouragement and an edification, particularly to the hearts of fathers on this Father's Day, but really it's to the whole family. I'm not focusing in on fathers specifically this morning. And I asked you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. The the prophecy of Isaiah uh, was given, this prophecy at least, until chapter 6 was given in the days of King Uzziah. Uzziah is also known in the Old Testament as King Azariah. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and the scriptures tell us he was both a good and a godly king. It was only at the tail end of Uzziah's reign that Isaiah began his prophetic ministry, so he didn't have that many years under Uzziah's uh, reign as a prophet, although probably at least 30 more years under uh, Uzziah's reign as a person. And his prophecy begins with uh, pretty harsh words against Judah for their sin. They were wicked, they were corrupt, and they were a rebellious people, and God was calling them back to him. And he tells them in chapter 1, that he doesn't want vain actions on his behalf. He doesn't just want empty religion. He wants their hearts and righteous actions to be compelled by a righteous heart. Look with me beginning in verse 7 of Isaiah 1. He says, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. He says, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations, vain sacrifices, he says. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moon and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. And he goes on. What a shock this would have been to the people of Judah. Here they are regularly observing the sacrifices, regularly observing the feast days, regularly observing the Sabbaths. And God says, stop it. Stop bringing it unto me. See, because you're doing it, but it's empty. You're doing the action, but you have no heart. You don't love me. You're not obeying me. If we could put it in modern terms, you're a saint on Sunday and a devil the rest of the week. That's what God is telling them. So don't even worry about coming on Sunday. 
if you're just going to be a devil the rest of the week because it's not doing you any good. That's what he's telling them. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your incense. I don't want your empty religion. Pretty harsh way to begin. Look at Isaiah. God then reminds them in chapter 2 of their covenant with them. He reminds them of the blessings that are upon the righteous and of his promise of absolute peace if Judah would only obey him. Notice what he says in verse 1. The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established at the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, Isaiah says, Come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Instead of this vain oblation, instead of all of this show that has nothing behind it, instead of all this empty religion, get right with God, do what's right before Him, obey Him, come and walk in the light of the Lord. Come and walk in the expectation of His commands. He reminds them of the blessings upon the righteous. He reminds them as well of the price of rebellion, promising that those who exalt themselves against God will be brought low. They will be brought to nothing. Look at verse 17. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And that is the context within which we find Isaiah 3, which is where our text will be this morning. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. When we talk about the consequences of sin, we're talking about two distinct but related categories in the Bible. There are what we call divine consequences for sin. Now, these are things that God does to a person or against a person as a direct response to their sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 reminds us of this reality. These verses say this, speaking to believers, Paul says, And ye have, not, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye, without, uh, are, if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. The scriptures reveal to us that as we strive against sin, a part of the process in a believer's life of overcoming our sin is submitting ourselves to the divine chastening of God. That when we are continuing in a sin, when there is sin in our life that we are persisting in, that the, the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of that sin, and then God the Father chastens us as a father would chasten his child. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the necessity of discipline in the home, about the importance of fathers chastening their children. We saw several 
scriptures, most of them in the Proverbs, describing to us the reality that if we spare the rod, that we are actually hurting our children more than if we physically discipline our children according to the Word of God. Not in anger, not beating our children, but physical chastening of our children as taught in the Word of God. The Scriptures tell us that one of the reasons why this is a benefit to us is because Proverbs chapter 3 and here in Hebrews chapter 12, we see that God the Father does the same thing to us. And as the young people in this room receive the chastening of their father, they can better understand the reality that when they sin before God and when they persist in sin before God, their Heavenly Father will chasten them as well. They can connect the physical to the spiritual and therefore understand the spiritual because they understand the physical. And so, in this passage, we recognize that this process of divine chastening is important. So important, in fact, that Paul says, if you are not, if you are a believer and you do not experience divine chastening when you persist in sin, then you're not a believer. You're not a child of God if you receive no chastening. Because God chastens His children. Divine chastening is real, and it's a vital part of the growth process of every believer. So this is what we would call divine judgment or divine chastening. Now, outside of believers, there's a legitimate debate concerning whether or not unbelievers face divine wrath in this idea. We know in the Old Testament, most certainly, unbelievers did face this, this divine judgment, this divine wrath, famines and pestilence and fire called down from heaven and death and these sorts of things as, as divine consequences for their physical sins. And there is a section of Christianity even today that sees things such as natural disasters as divine um, signaling of God's wrath. They would see a tornado tear through a town, or they would see a hurricane come through, or they would see um, uh, losses in a, in a battle, or whatever the case may be, and they would say, this is nothing less than the wrath of God being poured out upon a sinful nation. And to some degree, even following the advent of the church, there is precedent for that, but we really don't see precedent for that outside of the book of Acts. Acts was a very transitional period. We see many things in the book of Acts that we don't see anymore in the church. Acts chapter 12, however, verses 21 through 23 do tell us this. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. He was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. So we do see a, a small amount of precedent for this. But the reason why I call it a legitimate debate is because the scriptures also do tell us very clearly that we are currently residing in an age known as the Age of Grace. And this age will culminate with an outpouring of God's wrath like the world has never seen. It's the seven years of tribulation and the subsequent day of judgment. In Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul says this, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgeth them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and long suffering? 
not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So Paul describes in this passage that the unrepentant are storing up wrath unto a day which he calls the day of wrath, and he makes that synonymous with the righteous judgment of God. God teaches throughout Scripture that we are not to avenge ourselves, for vengeance is the Lord's. And even though in this life there are men who are wicked and evil and find nothing but prosperity, yet there is coming a day when their evil will be recompensed in fiery judgment. Correct? We all understand that. We know that. That there's coming a day where evil will be rewarded. And we have, would have a hard time looking at the world around us and saying, yes, indeed, evil is always rewarded in this life. Because we see evil men prospering all the time. And so I do see a legitimate debate wherein we could perhaps see that the things that men are doing in this age, which we know to be the age of grace, are being stored up unto the day of wrath. But that's not to say that God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty and in his power, is not able to pour out his divine wrath upon unbelievers in this age as well. You're going to hear both sides of that spectrum as you continue through your Christian life, I'm sure. And we can have balance, perspective, as we look at the Bible, understand what the Bible teaches, understand what the Bible says, understand what we see, understand what we know, and try to put these things together. Either way, it's not an issue to separate over or anything of the sort. So we've seen thus far two things. We've seen that sin in the lives of God's people is indeed divinely chastened. We've also considered the reality of divine judgment upon the unbelieving world. Whether that judgment be now or whether it be at the end of the age, there will be divine judgment upon the unbelieving world. But there's another form of judgment of sin that we see regularly, both in Scripture and in life. And perhaps we don't think of it as judgment, we just think of it as life. But it is indeed what I would call a natural judgment. And simply put, it's the natural life consequences that come about because of sin in one's life. These consequences are not necessarily due to specific divine action against us as much as they are the outcome of simply how God has designed this world to function. Let me illustrate the difference. When my daughters do something wrong, the consequences of that wrong can go beyond my discipline. Now, certainly, I will discipline my daughters, when one of my daughters disobeys me, she faces the possibility of discipline. Often this discipline is a spanking. Maybe it's the loss of some treat or some privilege. This is my proactive way, my, my proactive chastening to tell her that she's done something wrong, that I'm not going to tolerate her doing something wrong, and I'm seeking in a physical way to convince her that she doesn't want to do it and that it's in her best interest to obey daddy. But, you know, there are other consequences for her sin that go beyond simply the proactive chastening of her father. I tell my daughter, don't touch that stovetop, it's hot. Well, my daughter touches that stovetop and she is going to receive the natural consequences of her disobedience. And that will be a burnt hand. I didn't give her that consequence. 
right? I didn't say, oh, you touched it, now I'm going to hold your hand on the burner for a while. I didn't do anything like that. I simply said, don't touch it, it's hot. She touched it, she disobeyed daddy. She received the natural consequence of her actions. Now, there are other consequences as well. My daughter begins lying to me. I don't pick up on it. She is offending her conscience. She will be racked with guilt. She will have to deal with that. And we have all seen in society that the body does have, there's some tremendously negative effects upon the body when one is racked with guilt. Sleeping dis dis um, disabilities and um, depression and several of the ailments of this age can often be linked to guilt. I'm not saying that every time someone's depressed or every time someone can't sleep, it's guilt. But this is a side effect that can come from a guilty conscience. And so if we parallel this concept in our lives to how God, as our Heavenly Father, treats us, we begin to get a picture of how life works. God can judge through divine actions. He can tell us, whether we're a believer or unbeliever, uh, the law of God written on our heart. He can tell us that you don't lie and you don't steal and it's more blessed to give than to receive. And God can chasten us for those things. God can pour out divine judgment uh, upon a man when he disobeys. But we also see the natural judgments that God allows to happen in a society. A man is very self-centered. He's constantly lying. He's cheating. He's stealing. He's doing everything to get his own way. And he is doing just fine. And then one day he gets caught. He loses his job. He loses his family. His life falls apart around him as a natural consequence of his sin. Society wouldn't call it sin, but that's what it is. And he will reap the natural negative consequences of his sinful behavior. This isn't necessarily proactive judgment by God. It's more or less the consequences of dishonesty. God has put a system in place whereby he said, this is righteousness, this is evil. Righteousness is blessed, evil is not. And that's what I mean by natural consequences. Those negative things that come about in our lives, in the lives of our church, in the lives of our society, as a natural extension of the sins that we are committing. Now, it's still God's judgment. It's just divinely decreed, as opposed to proactively laid down. Now, as we step into Isaiah chapter 3 today, I'm giving kind of a long introduction but as we step into Isaiah 3 today, God is going to describe the failures of Judah. And first, he's going to describe the, the proactive consequences that God is going to give to them as his people. And then he's going to describe the natural state that they found themselves in as a consequence of the sins that they were involved in. And as we do so, it's my hope we will understand when we're finished today that the family, as a God-ordained institution, is essential. And when we distort the family, when we confuse the family, or when we redefine what a family is, the natural consequences of this sin upon family, upon our church, and upon society are drastic. And it will literally change the very fabric of church and society. And so look with me in Isaiah 3. We'll begin in verse 1. 
God says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war and the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of fifty and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent order. God begins this section of prophecy by promising to remove from Jerusalem and Judah any ability that they have to lean on their own strength. He is going to remove from them every mighty man, every wise man, every capable man. And this was a part of God's proactive divine judgment upon the land. That as God allows them to be destroyed by their enemies, they will find themselves without natural leaders, without counselors, without even anyone to help them. Literally, God says, what I'm going to do, as he mentioned in chapter 2, verse 17, is he is going to bring them to their knees, to where they have no one to turn to but him. They won't have any mighty man in the land to turn to. They won't have any wise king in the land to turn to. They won't have any prophet to turn to. They're going to lose all of them. And there's going to be nothing left but the young and the immature. In place of the capable, God says the people will have no one to look to but young and the poor. And then notice verses 4 through 8. Scriptures tell us, And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. And the people shall be oppressed, every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The children shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. When a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler, and let this ruin be under thy hand. In that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be an healer. For in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people, for Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord, to provoke the eyes of his glory. Literally, as God speaks here, the idea in these verses is that there is no maturity, not even in the king, but also the king's, not even in the king, not in his counselors, in no one. There is no more maturity left in the land. There's no good leader. There's no one even with enough money. That literally, anyone with wisdom, anyone of selfless devotion, anyone capable would have been removed from the land, leaving only those that have no understanding or are weak to rule. God describes a state where the people are so desperate for a leader that a man can become a leader simply because he is fortunate enough to have clothing or food. And even then, the man that has clothing and food will say, I don't want to leave this people. Don't put me in charge of this mess. God is describing a time of hopelessness in the land. Such would be a, a time of divine judgment upon Israel as consequences of their sin. This is that divine, that proactive judgment that God has placed against his people because they are his covenant people. Thus far, God has described a society that will be barren after he is finished with his judgment. But in the next several verses, God describes where the society was before his judgment would take place. Where the natural consequences of the society's own sins had brought them. And this is where I'd like to part for our final time of teaching today. This is where I want to draw our application. I've given you a lot of foundation, but that's because I hate jumping into a passage. You've got to have context. Context is king. And so I wanted to give you a great amount of context 
so that you know what's going on here. God has spoken of divine chastening, yes. It's because they're his covenant people. He's spoken of these things. But particularly in verses 9 through 12, he is going to describe where the nation is today. Not today, contemporary, but where it was the day Isaiah was writing. What had brought them to the place where God was going to judge them in this way? How was their society in health before the divine judgment began? And this will help us greatly in seeing the importance of what we've done these past six weeks in emphasizing the family. In verses 9 through 11, we see the first description of this society, and it was a society that had no shame in their sin. A society that had no shame in their sin. Look with me at verse 9. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. God says this was a society that, like Sodom in time past, had absolutely no shame over their sin. You recall the events surrounding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The scriptures tell us that the defining sin of that city and those cities was what we define now today as sodomy or homosexuality. It was sexual in nature. The city was full of those who had not curbed their own lusts, who had allowed their passions to overflow even to the unnatural, which is what homosexuality is. But what revealed the deep wickedness of this society was not that they were practicing the sin of homosexuality, but they were not ashamed of their sin. The, the deep-rooted wickedness, as we saw in Ezekiel several weeks ago, and as we see here uh, as presented in Isaiah, uh, is that the, though we see the, the great consequences of their sin, we also see that it was a society in which there was no shame for their sin. They were bold. They were unapologetic in the way that the men of Sodom openly declared their wickedness. And this revealed society's deep depravity. The society praised this evil. They even rewarded this evil. And when this happens in a society, when society rewards evil, when society calls good evil and evil good, when society is proud of their sin, you know that this is a society that has fallen off of the cliff of morality and plunged into depravity. And so this was a society that had no shame in their sin. And as God sees Judah so proudly and so openly declare their sin, he has a message both to the righteous in the land and to the unrighteous. To the righteous, he says this in verse 10, Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat of the fruit of their doings. We know from Scripture that the Lord does not destroy the righteous in judgment with the wicked. In alignment with God's character, he assures the righteous that it shall be well with them and that they will receive the fruit of their righteousness. On the other hand, notice what he says in verse 11 to the wicked. He says, Woe unto the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Just like the righteous, the wicked will also receive of the fruit of their doings. The righteous receive the fruit of their righteousness. The wicked receive the fruit of their wickedness. These are declarations, not of divine consequence, but of natural consequence. That the natural, divinely ordained fruit of that which is righteous is righteous. 
And the natural, divinely ordained fruit of evil is evil. Because the nation had pursued sin, unabashedly pursued sin, they had received the natural consequences, which was a society that was proud in their sin and openly defiant to the word of God. That's a natural consequence of sin. In verse 12, at the beginning, the first half of verse 12, we see the second natural consequence of a society that has fallen off the cliff morally. And that is a society where children are their oppressors. You see the Hebrew word there literally meaning a driver or a tyrant or an exactor. This verse describes a situation where the children of the land have become the tyrants of society. A society where the natural order of adult to child authority has been turned on its head. Where, as in a society, it is intended that the adults would lead, that the adults would be in control, and would carefully and lovingly direct, discipline, and grow their children into proper members of society. Judah had come to the point where they allowed the children to dictate society. And as the children were allowed to dictate society, to drive society, when authority was turned upon its head, God says, this is a society of wickedness. This is a society that has spiraled into error. One more this morning, second half of verse 12. God says in verse 12, As for my people, the children of their oppressors, and women rule over them. And women rule over them. The third and final characteristic that we see of a society that has plunged into great error is a society, you see the Hebrew word there, to rule or to have dominion, a society where children are leading and where the women rule. All throughout Scripture, God makes it clear that men are intended to rule, men are intended to lead. Now, there are times in Scripture where women take upon themselves this role, but we don't see it as times where um, everything is, is going great. We see it as time where the men have abdicated their responsibility to spiritually lead their families and their societies. We know that if a man won't step up and step in, that God is willing to use women. Women are not inferior to men in a capability sense. We've talked about this several times over the past six weeks. We're not saying that women are uh, a lower class of humanity or anything of the sort. Simply that men and women have different roles as ordained by God. We talked about that. The role of the father is not the same as the role of the mother. The role of the husband is not the same as the role of the wife. That God has ordained in society clear and distinct roles. And God says a society that has spiraled into wickedness is a society where instead of shame for sin, because men uh, will flee, men will hide. It didn't Adam and Eve hide when they committed sin in the garden, it is a natural propensity in the heart of men to hide in shame from their sin. It's the whole reason why we wear clothes. We're hiding, we're attempting to hide our shame. That's why Adam and Eve clothed themselves. It's the first thing they did. It's a shame. We run from sin. A society that doesn't run from sin anymore, a society that's not ashamed of their sin, it's a backward society. It's a sinful, error-filled society. A society where the children are no longer subservient to the adults, where everything's been turned on its head, it's a backward society. A society where the women are ruling the men, it's a backward society. He's describing everything being backward. Sin has distorted everything. It's turned everything on its head. Everything's on its head. This 
is what we see as a society in error. No shame in their sin. Children are society's oppressors. Women are society's rulers. And look at the rest of verse 12. God says, O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. And God's going to stand up and plead with them to change. I only want to make one application this morning. Just one. And it's this. The health of a church and the health of a society is largely dependent upon the health of a family. Maybe I should add a word there. A biblically functioning family. For weeks now, we've been talking about the elements of a healthy family. We began by speaking to the father and the husband and emphasizing how very important it is that you take upon yourself the role of leader and teacher and guide, that you step up and that you step in and that you you take responsibility for, for your family, for leading them into righteousness, for teaching them the word of God. It's not your pastor's job. It's not your church's job. It's not your government's job. It's your job. Now, your pastor can help. Your church can help. Your government's not going to help. But it's your job to teach your children in the way that they should go. Then we spoke to the mother and to the wife and emphasized the necessity of being a good and godly example of motherhood and of womanhood, of supporting your husband, of getting beside him, of, of, of being a helpmeet to him as you have been called to be, of raising your children as unto the Lord. Then we spoke to the children and to the siblings, you recall, and emphasized the importance of your role in the family through obedience and through preparation doing what you're told, serving the Lord. Then we gave some warnings and some exhortations to do right. Some warnings against the dangers that might come in society and in your family and in this church if we abdicate, particularly we as parents, abdicate our responsibility to raise our children and to pass the faith from our faith to our children's faith. There are many individual reasons why all of these lessons are important. But in this passage, we can take a step back. It's kind of like we've been looking with the microscope at each of the, the members of the family, the mother and the father and the children and the siblings. And now we're going to step back and we're going to look at the family as a whole and we're going to look at the church as a whole and we're going to look at society as a whole. And what we are going to see is that your family doesn't just matter to you. Your family is essential to this church. The functioning of your family and the proper functioning of your family is essential to this church, to how this church gets along spiritually. If we don't want a church that's, that's turned on its head, doctrinally, theologically, then we need to make sure that we have solid families. Now, if you're an individual in this room, I'm not telling you not to come. I'm not telling you we don't want you here. We want you here. We need you here. But this is family emphasis, so I'm talking to families. And families. You're going to set the tone for this church. A proper family is one where the father is the godly leader. The mother is the submissive nurturer. The children are obedient and active learners. And when a society or a church is made up of proper families, it thrives. On the contrary, scripture and history both reveal that when the family weakens, the church weakens, and societies weaken. 
And what we have seen in Isaiah 3 today is a society that was bold in their sin, a society that allowed children to go undisciplined, and a society where the women took charge and God called this society errant. Now, perhaps as you listen to this message, you have thought about a certain society we live in and realize that we are right there today in our society. We live in a country that doesn't just sin, but it sins boldly. Homosexuality isn't just tolerated, it's celebrated. Our children are murdered with pride. Our women are encouraged to prostitute themselves before their teen years are even accomplished. Our children are encouraged to fill their bodies with drugs and their minds with pagan entertainment. And this is the society which we live in. A society that is proud of its sin, as Judah was. We also live in a country where children have long since become our tyrants. In our society, discipline of children is seen as abuse. To allow a child to fail is to damage that child's self-image. There can be no competition. You all just get a award for participating, right? Because if there's competition, then someone's going to have their self-esteem hurt. We don't want to hurt our children's self-esteem. To deny our children anything that they want is to do our children wrong because children know what they need. Our society is dictated by the whims of children and it's just as Judas was. It's errant. And finally, we live in a, in a country where women are claiming the right to rule. We have a society that sees any male domination at, or male leadership as male domination. If there's not a proper ratio of males to females in the workplace, then there's something terribly wrong with that, with that workplace, right? If there's not enough females in the president's cabinet, then there's something wrong with that president. Women are seeking to take over that role of leadership. We spoke in week one of this series concerning the danger of radical feminism and how radical feminism has touched both society in the secular sense as well as the church. Radical feminism, that which denies God's design for family. They believe that if a woman is a stay-at-home mom, she has shackled herself to the moorings of male chauvinistic preconceptions, and therefore she is simply perpetuating a system. We've talked, please don't get me wrong, we've talked about the fact that it's not inherently wrong for a woman to work. It's not inherently wrong uh, for, for women to, to have guidance role, particularly in the family. As a matter of fact, it's expected. But that there are societal roles. And those roles have been turned on their heads today. But you know, this isn't just happening in secular society, is it? It's happening in Christian society. It's happening in the church. There are sections of the church, as we've talked about in 1 Corinthians for months, that have turned liberty into license. They openly live lives which bear no spiritual fruit, no spiritual distinction. They look at the world, they look like the world, they talk like the world, they act like the world, and then they claim Christ. Portions of our church have been turned on their heads, being bold in their sin. It's the same thing with this child-first mentality. Portions of the church refuse the biblical expectations of child discipline and yield to the secular philosophy of child catering. They'd more 
they're more willing to listen to Dr. Phil than they are to listen to the Word of God when it comes to raising their children. There have been great portions of the church that have been turned on their heads in regard to the realities of children and their role. And then finally, probably most pronounced in the church, maybe not most anymore, uh, several churches just this past week reading in the news came out with their support for the homosexual agenda. And so the boldness of sins coming to the church greatly. But finally, we do see as well that church has by and large yielded the distinction of the biblical command of male leadership. Even if the pastor is still a male in the church, oftentimes behind the scenes, you'll find the pastor's wife running the show or the women of the church running the show or teaching every other class except for the preaching in the morning or whatever the case may be. Everything's been turned on its head in the church just as it had been in Judah. And families in this room, why is it so important that you have a proper functioning family? Fathers on Father's Day. Why is it so important that you lead, that you guide, that you be that man? Now that doesn't mean you don't take advice from your wife or ask your wife for advice or or have her help you in the decision making and help you in the various aspects. You delegate just fine. But know that the buck stops with you. That's the way God ordained it. That's the way it needs to be in your home and in your family. Fathers, when you step up and lead as God has called you to do, you are an example to the church and you are an example to society of what it is that God has designed the male to be and that is a leader. You are an example to the church when you lead your home of proper leadership in the church. You are an example to society as you lead your home of proper leadership in society. Mother, when you willingly and joyfully submit as God has called you to submit, you are a demonstration not just to your children and your family, but to the church and to society of God design for feminine submission in the home and in the church and in society. You manifest the truth. It doesn't matter if they scorn you. You know, they scorn Christ too for manifesting the truth. You are showing forth the truth and the reason why they're scorning you is because the truth is shining into their hearts and it's making them feel guilty. Their conscience is bearing witness to the truth of the way you're living your life. Children, when you willingly and joyfully obey your parents as God has called you to obey. You teach the church how to obey God. You teach society what it is to submit to authority, whether that be leaders in government, whether that be uh, leaders in the workplace, employees, whether that be parents, whether that be the pastor, whether that be God the Father. You are teaching how to obey when you obey. So folks, when we say that family is the very backbone of society, perhaps you've heard that before, when we say that, it's not because family is inherently something different than any other institution. It's not 
because it's the most general of institutions and the most ubiquitous of institutions and the most accessible of institutions. Those things are true. But the reason why family is the backbone of society is because it is the nucleus. It is the very smallest unit of measurement by which every element of society can be taught. Leadership, submission, obedience can be taught, can be fostered, can be matured. That's why family is so essential. That's why divorce is so devastating. That's why the sodomite agenda is so devastating. That's why the transgender agenda is so devastating. Yes, it's abomination and sin before God and it's unnatural. But these things are devastating as they destroy the family, not simply for the family's sake, but because God has ordained the family to teach the society and the church of Him. What a tremendous responsibility we have as a part of a family. What a tremendous privilege we have to reflect God simply by living as he had called us to. Naturally, then, it should not surprise us that the family is under great attack by Satan today. And as God's people, we may not be able to sway culture to see things God's way. We live in culture, and culture is convicted, and then they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear that they're sinners. That God is a holy God and a righteous God, and they're on their way to hell because they're sinners. They need to hear that God has made a way for them to be saved through Jesus Christ alone because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. They need to hear that there's nothing they can do to earn their way to heaven, but that heaven can only be obtained as they accept the free gift given to them by Jesus Christ alone. And that if they will accept that gift, they will be saved. But what we can do, as well as a family, is week in and week out be a part of a church and exemplify God among ourselves and to one another to exhort and to encourage the brethren in the Lord. And those who do see us will see something different from the world around them. And perhaps through our testimony churches, families, and even parts of society will come to better understand God's word and God's expectations for them. Let's pray.